This morning we'll be looking at verses 14 through 19 in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. As you're turning there, I'm very thankful to, to report to you that Emma is still doing well. Her lungs are staying clear and we feel that her level of alertness is continuing to increase. And by that I mean when we ask her questions, Emma is still nonverbal. Uh, but when we ask her questions, her yeses or her noes are very clear. Uh, sometimes we ask her questions with a little bit of a twist and she answers correctly. So we are very thankful we're seeing these things occur. And thank you for your amen. Give glory to God. We're still in the middle of this high priestly prayer of Jesus. He's praying on this night before he is arrested and even before he is gone out of the upper room. He's praying not only for those disciples that are present, he's praying for us. Child of God, Jesus is praying for you here and he's praying for me. So we're still in this prayer and we're coming in in the middle of it. So I direct your attention to verses 14 through 19. We pick up where we left off last week. Jesus prays to his heavenly Father. I've given them your word. and The world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. That they also may be sanctified in truth. Pray with me again. Oh Lord, the song we just finished singing is our prayer. Speak to us, O oh Lord. Give us ears that will hear you, eyes to, to behold your glory, and hearts that are soft and willing and eager to receive your word that we might be conformed, changed, to be more like Jesus. Let your world, the world, see your glory through us. We pray this through Christ, our mediator and our Savior. And the church said, Amen. Pastor and author Charles Swindoll tells of a letter that he received. He'd been preaching a series about joy and prayer and how those two truths intermingle. And this letter was sent as an encouragement. It was, came from a woman who said that her life had been characterized by joy and prayer. She said that joy and prayer had helped her raise 12 children all of whom had been born to her after she turned 32. She had met and married her husband at age 31. And she said even that, she had never worried about finding a husband. In fact, she went on to explain in her letter that this is how she handled her desire for her husband and to be married. She said she went out and she bought a pair of men's pants. And she hung them over the foot of her bed. And then she would kneel and pray every night, Father in heaven, hear my prayer, and grant it if you can. I've hung a pair of trousers here. Please fill them with a man. And it worked. Now the reason I point out that story is that she was praying the desire of her heart. 
You see, at some point, all of us, every believer will get beyond the prayers that we've learned by rote, the prayers that we say out of habit, and something will happen where all pretense will be gone. And we will begin to cry out our desire unto the Lord. Lord, bring relief from this pain. Oh Lord, we're not sure how this will work out. Father, please provide a solution. Overhear the prayer of Jesus. He's praying what his heart desires. And the amazing thing is, is that as he's praying here, his desire is for his people. He has prayed already that you and I would know and enjoy the glory of God. He desires that for us. He has prayed that you and I will remember who we are in Him and that we belong to God and we would never forget that. And now He makes two requests of God. Next week we'll look at the third, but for this morning we focus on two. Jesus prays for us, first of all, that God will protect us. And then He prays that God will sanctify us. So those are the requests that God, that Jesus lays before God. Father, protect them. God, sanctify them. And I really believe that as Jesus intercedes today for us at the right hand of the Father, there's a good chance His prayer still models that. Lord, protect them. Lord, Father, sanctify them. Jesus prays for our protection because you and I, church, we have a very real enemy. This is the focus of verses 14 through 16. In many ways, when you read verse 14, it's like a, a blast of cold air when we step out of the house on a winter morning. It's kind of shocking and takes our breath because Jesus says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. Language is shocking. Nobody likes to hear that they are hated let alone when you feel like you're being obedient to Christ. But the words, while shocking, should not be surprising because Jesus has said this before. He's always been up front with His followers. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, they will persecute you. Jesus said that if they have hated Him, they will hate us. And the they is the world. I would remind you that the world refers to those who are in rebellion against God. Whether it is conscious rebellion or unconscious rebellion, they are actively living lives outside of God's plan without recognizing God, without recognizing who Jesus is. This is the default setting of every person that is born. We are natural born sinners. And sinners create systems that perpetuate sin. It's what we do. And when a person follows Christ, that person should not expect the world to stand up and to applaud those who are following Christ because the reason we are hated is connected to the Word. Look in verse 14. Jesus says, I've given them your Word. In other words, He has spoken the words that God commanded him to speak. He has lived the life that God desired him to live. For Jesus is the Word of God incarnate. This Word is powerful. If I could have a witness stand before you, Lazarus would stand and he would testify the Word of God is so powerful that when it is spoken, it gives life to dead people. 
Another witness would stand up. He would be a blind man named Bartimaeus who, who was begging outside of Jericho. And he would say the word of God is so powerful that it gives sight to those who are blind. It gives light to those that are in darkness. We could get ten lepers that would stand up here and say the word of God is so powerful that it takes that which is unclean and makes it clean. You see, the word of God will always accomplish the purpose for which God sends it out. When God calls one to salvation, that calling is effective and the world will hate that. Jesus was clear when he said, this is the judgment. This is in John 3. The light has come into the world People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, that's the thing about light. When you've been in darkness, it is painful. And that's why the world reacts the way it does to the Word of God. It is painful. Now understand, the world will be on the side of the Word of God as long as we focus on the parts the world is comfortable with. They will applaud the ethic of Jesus about loving your neighbor. But... When we begin to preach the gospel of God that says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's where the world will say, You're intolerant. When we say that we must turn away from sin, the world will say, Who are you to say anything about sin? Because part of the gospel is conviction. The truth is, all of us flee from that. But those who turn and come to Christ will experience persecution because of their faith. But I want you to keep in mind that even though the Word of God brings about hatred of the world, the world, those who are in rebellion against God, are not our enemies. Our real enemy is the evil one. Look at verse 15. Jesus said, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. In other words, Jesus isn't calling us to retreat. He's not calling us to hunker down in the bunker, as it were. But Lord, keep them from the evil one. That's a prayer of protection. That word keep means to watch over them, to keep them from, from harm. Jesus is asking God the Father to protect us from the evil one. The evil one is the devil. Satan. The great deceiver. For many, belief in the devil has faded. And the devil has simply become kind of this amalgamation representing the forces of evil in the world. But the scripture won't allow us to go there. The devil is a real being. The devil has intellect. And he communicates. Jesus spoke with him. When he was tempted in the wilderness. The devil can disguise himself. The Apostle Paul says the devil can appear as an angel of the light. Remember, the devil is a fallen angel. When he says that he can appear as an angel of the light, it means that the devil can appear to be doing good even though what he is doing is destructive and vile. He is deceitful. The devil attacks God. He attacks the things of God. His work is to destroy the church and to hinder the spread of the gospel. And to that end, the devil will always target the word of God. 
He will always work to undermine the Word of God. He will always work to cause the Word of God to be ignored and discarded. That has been his strategy from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, when the devil tempts Eve, what does he say? Did God really say? And that is his work even today. To cast dispersion upon the Word of God that He might strike at the glory of God. Now, please understand that in saying that, that in no way absolves us of our responsibility. You and I are still accountable to God for our sins. We can never step back and say, well, the devil made me do it. The devil does not make us sin. He will, seek our he will seek our sinful nature as an opportunity to strike at the glory of God. So He will feed temptations. He will do what He can to bring us to make the decision to rebel against God. Our sinful nature is a tool in the hands of the devil. And He wants to play us like an instrument. Now we don't despair because we know that the devil was defeated by Jesus in the cross and the resurrection, yet the devil still wreaks havoc. It often causes Christians to rightly ask, well, if Satan is defeated, then, then why is he still wreaking havoc? If he knows he's defeated. Earlier this year, I finished a book by Albert Speer entitled Inside the Third Reich. Albert Speer was Adolf Hitler's minister of armaments. He was in the inner circle of Adolf Hitler. It's an amazing read because he gives an inner working of what happened. Adolf Speer was tried at the Nuremberg Tribunals and he was sentenced to prison. He wasn't executed because Albert Speer worked to mitigate some of the things that Hitler was doing in the last days of the Third Reich. You see, when Hitler saw that he was defeated, he sent out orders that as the German army was retreating, they were to destroy everything. Hitler gave orders they were to destroy bridges, they were to burn uh, uh, buildings of industry, they were to destroy communications, they were to leave nothing for the Allies and Albert Speer came behind the scenes working to stop those orders. That's a picture of what Satan does. Satan's defeated. And even as he is in retreat, he is working to, to destroy, to wreak destruction, to spread lies, and to stop the work of God. And God has placed the church there that we might mitigate the work of Satan. So Satan will turn his scope on us. So Jesus says, God protect them. Now God protects us in several ways. I'll mention two of them. One, God limits the scope of Satan's work. Satan is on a leash. He's not allowed to do everything that he wants to do. The book of Job, Satan appears in the presence of God and he, he mocks Job and says, the only reason Job is faithful to you is because you've given him everything. Take those things away, God, and you'll see Job will curse you. God allows Satan to come after Job, but God says you cannot touch his life. You can only go so far and then stop. God put limits on Satan. We see instances where Jesus controls the demonic. Now, of course, this begs the question, Lord, why do you allow Satan to even hurt your children at all? That's a great question. 
It touches on the mystery of evil. And I don't have, there's no way I can stand here and tell you that I've got an answer to that. But where I would point you to is the cross and the resurrection. You see, the cross and the resurrection tell us that in the greatest evil, the death of Jesus, God brought about the greatest demonstration of His glory, the resurrection of Jesus, to bring about His greatest work, the redemption of of those who would be saved. So that tells me that as God allows Satan in a framework to come against the church, it will actually end up for the church's good that God will be greatly glorified even in the adversity that Satan throws in our way. That's how God thwarts the work of Satan. Thwarts a great word. That's how he thwarts Satan's work. You see, Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. So our God will take what Satan intends for evil and use it for good. That's how God protects us. And church, He also protects us with His Word. That's one of the means that God protects us from becoming a tool in Satan's hand and being destroyed by Satan. For example, we are taught to forgive. That's a clear teaching of Jesus. Forgive that your heavenly Father might forgive you. Matthew 6. Paul echoes this in Ephesians when he says, Forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. We are commanded to forgive one another. Now, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, the church that was being split in several different factions. And up on the screen, you'll see one of the words that Paul wrote. He said, if you'll go to that slide, please, from 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. He says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. In other words, if there's been issues in the church, I'm not going to hold it against them either. I forgive them. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So in other words, Paul says, as I forgive, it's for your sake in the presence of Jesus. In other words, I want you to know the grace of God. Now look at what he writes next. So that. Now that's an important phrase. Here's the reason why Paul says he is forgiven and why he sets the model that we should forgive. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You know what he's saying there? Unforgiveness is used by Satan to attack the church, to destroy the veracity of the gospel, and to destroy the believer who refuses to forgive. Forgive. Otherwise, you're going to be outwitted by Satan and you're playing right into his designs for you. You see, God protects us through his word by telling us, forgive, because if you don't, guess what? Satan's going to use that as an opportunity to destroy this church, to destroy the witness of the gospel, and to make you miserable as a follower of Christ. God protects us by telling us what to do. And we need to heed this word of protection because we're not of the world. This is a truth that Jesus reiterates several times in this brief passage. Verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Now we recognize that Jesus is not talking about his divine identity. Jesus is not of this world because indeed he is God made flesh. You and I cannot say that. But what we can say is this. Jesus was not of this world because he never rebelled against the Heavenly Father. Because he lived a sinless life in complete obedience to God. He is saying his followers who seek to live as he did, seek to act as he acted, seek to speak as he spoke, will show they're not of this world. They're not in rebellion against God, just as Jesus was not in rebellion against God. 
Now, I would remind you that Jesus is praying this because he knows that the disciples are going to be persecuted. Shortly. They're going to suffer. And I think these words of Jesus where he says, protect them from the evil one for they are not of this world need to resonate with us here today in 2021. Now, I am not a prophet in the sense that I predict the future. But as I look at the horizon of our culture, church, we are going to be more and more pushed to the fringes of society and will begin to bear the blame for things that happen in our country. Christians will be more and more seen as the problem stopping progress. Now this should not surprise us. You read church history, and please do, this isn't the first time this has happened. The amazing thing is, is that the church has always thrived when that has happened. But there are dangers that we must be aware of. See, one danger when this heat of persecution begins to increase is that the church will throw up its hands and stop preaching truth. The church will simply acquiesce. Listen, we're not going to fight against you on these issues, so yeah, it, you go ahead with our blessing because we don't want to fail. We already see hints of this happening as different institutions are changing their policies. That's one route we cannot go and will not go. We will stand on the promises. But there's another route that is equally as dangerous. And it's one I think the church in America must be careful we don't go down. And it's this. We cannot adopt the mentality that says we will get even with them. We will fight fire with fire. In other words, what happens is that when the church is attacked, often many times the church will attack back. When we are made, uh, made scapegoats, we will turn and we will attack those that are saying those things with our words. And we become no different than the world around us. We must be careful that we do not adopt a mentality that says the end justifies the means. We cannot go that route either. So what do we do? We follow the example of Christ. When Jesus was persecuted, he did not raise his voice against those persecuting him. First Peter records these words. You'll see them up on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, if you could pull that up, please. When Jesus was reviled, he cursed them back. No, that's not what that says. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the model we must follow. That is how we must seek to live our lives, for we are not of the world. Furthermore, our battle is not against the world. Our battle is against the rulers, the powers, the authorities, and cosmic places of this present darkness. We fight against spiritual forces in heavenly places, and Christ is our victor. So we look to Him. The way to bring about change in the culture is not through legislation. While we may be, want, need to be aware and vote for legislation that is good and right, we must recognize that the heart of the nation will be changed as believers seek to spread the gospel to neighbor to neighbor by showing the love of Christ and engaging in conversation with those who live next door, those whom we work with, sharing the love of Christ in word and deed. 
opportunities. God will place us in those opportunities. Ten days from now, our nation will celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Better have your green on or you'll get pinched. But you know what often happens in the celebration of St. Patrick's Day is that we forget the man behind the day. Many believers in America don't even know of St. I mean, they know the name St. Patrick, but they don't know the story of Magnus Zacatus Patricus. As a young boy, he was growing up on the shores of England. His dad was a deacon in the church. They had a comfortable life until he was 16 years old. And a band of pirates from Ireland raided his village, kidnapped him, other youth, and slaves, and took them to Ireland where he became a slave to a druid priest and forced to feed and live in the barn, feed the hogs and live in the barn. Patrick wrote that it was during this time that he became convinced that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He said, I was 16 and knew not the true God, but in a strange land the Lord opened my unbelieving eyes and I was converted. And he became convinced that the kidnapping and the homesickness were actually opportunities to know Jesus better. He said, anything that happens to me, whether pleasant or distasteful, I ought to accept with serenity, giving thanks to God who never disappoints. He said as he prayed, he said, I knew it was the Spirit praying within me. He was a slave for six years. Until, and I'm not making this up, he was able to sneak out by night find escape by hiding on a ship and got back to England. So he was never so glad to be home. You can only imagine. And when he was back in England, he said, it's not in my nature to show divine mercy toward the very ones who enslaved me. Now, I, we can understand that. He said he didn't want to forgive those who had enslaved him in Ireland. And then you know what God did? God began putting Ireland on his heart. The people who persecuted him... Patrick began having a desire that they would know the gospel. He began to tell his friends, you know what? I think God's calling me to go back to Ireland. What? Patrick, you were a slave there. You fed pigs. You lived in the barn. No, no, God is calling me. In fact, Patrick said his friends tried to stop him. They said, why does this fellow waste himself among dangerous enemies who don't even know God? But in the year 432, Patrick used his own money to purchase a boat sailed back to Ireland where he had been enslaved and he preached the gospel powerfully. That's the model we need. To say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm not of this world. I belong to you. And God, you must work. That's why Jesus prays for this next thing. Notice in verse 17, sanctify them. There's the second request. Lord, protect them. Now, Lord, sanctify them. In other words, set them apart. Make them holy. Jesus is praying that we will be different from the world. Remember, we can't go down the path of, 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 of responding to those who attack us by attacking them. Can't go down that path. Why? He's called for us to be sanctified, set apart. Jesus prays that we'll be different from the world. Now, that may include things external like how we dress, dressing modestly. But it will also go much deeper to speak of our character. That's why it says sanctify them in what? The truth. 
Now, just in case we're wondering what is truth, which is a question asked frequently these days, notice he says next, your word is truth. And by the way, the grammar of that phrase is truth and word can be interchanged. Your truth, truth is your word. Your word is truth. They are the same. What God says is true, and that is the instrument he uses to mold us and to shape us to be like Jesus. Now, on one level, we've already been sanctified, set apart, called out. That happened when you and I were saved. That's why he says, when Paul writes to the church at Corinth in chapter 1, verse 2 of the first letter, he says to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, we're already set apart, already holy, yet Jesus' praise will be set apart, and we are called to be holy. What that means is this. We are called to be what we already are in Christ. When a believer lives an unholy life, we are being sub-Christian. We're not living up to who we are. We are made holy. Live that way. Distinct from the world. I'm still convinced that one of, if not the greatest television show ever made, is the Andy Griffith Show. By the response, I see many of you agree. There's an episode where Andy is out of town, which means Barney is left as the sheriff. And so what does Barney do? He does what he normally does. He deputizes Gomer. So Barney and Gomer are going down the street, and they see the Mayberry Bank being robbed. They get down and hide behind a car, and Gomer's eyes are as big as saucers. And he goes, Shazam! We, are, we need to call the police. And Barney says, with his voice trembling, we are the police. If we look around at the world and we say, man, this world just, it doesn't even know what holiness is. It doesn't know what purity is. We are the ones called to be holy. We are the ones to called to live purely before God. And the truth is that it is God's word that brings about that change. Now remember what I said earlier. Satan attacks God's word. Satan wants to keep you from the word of God because he doesn't want you to be changed. He doesn't want believers living holy lives. So he'll do everything he can to keep you from being in God's word daily, hourly, everything he can. Those distractions, tools of Satan. The excuses, that's Satan playing on your desires to go away from God. So if we want to be holy, then we must be in the Word. Now, here's the danger. That in seeking to be holy, we develop a mentality of, well, we cannot associate with anyone that is not a Christian. We make this commitment that we will only listen to Christian music, only read Christian books, and only drink milk from Christian cows. Read the next verse. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> we are called out to go back in. <laughs> now I don't mean go back in to be like the world. We're called out of the world that we might go back into the world to share the gospel that calls people out of the world. That's why we're persecuted. He is saying, Lord, send them back into the world that they might share the gospel. That's their purpose. That's why Jesus says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself. That is the same terminology as sanctify. Jesus says, for their sake, I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Interesting phrase. 
For their sake is substitution. In other words, in their place, I consecrate myself. Now, the word consecrate is a very powerful word. In the Old Testament, there were three things that were consecrated, set apart, sanctified. Priest, prophets, and sacrificial animals. Jesus is saying, I consecrate myself as their priest. Who represents us before God? Jesus does. I consecrate myself as the prophet speaking the word of God. And I consecrate myself as the sinless, spotless, unblemished lamb of God for them. That they might be sanctified. Now, if we follow this model, so in other words, Jesus was priest, prophet, and sacrificial lamb, that we also may be sanctified, also may be consecrated. We are called to be priests, praying for our enemies, praying for one another. We are called to be prophets, speaking, living the word of God. And while we take up the cross knowing that we do not die or cannot die to save others, we can model the cruciform life, dying to self, that others may live in Christ. I'm so thankful that Jesus prayed that God would protect us and sanctify us because God is faithful and true. Would you bow your heads with me? Oh Lord, I'm reminded of the old spiritual that says that if ever we needed the Lord, we sure do need Him now. And Father, we do. We feel the tide of this world pulling us like an undertow deeper and deeper. And Lord, you've called us out. And Father, as you've called us out of this tide that is sweeping us over, now, Lord, you're calling us to, to be the lifeguards who rush in that we might share the good news of the gospel. Sanctify us to that end. Help us, Father, to be like Christ. And we can only do that through your power. So help us, O oh Lord. Grant this, we pray. To your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.